What did you have for breakfast today? Uh, I had a beef burger for brunch, I guess. A beef burger? Yeah. Tasty. For brunch, Welcome to the Uncommon Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Michaelides. In our podcast, we interview unique individuals and investigate interesting topics, helping you to build the uncommon sense crucial to increasing performance. Our guests have included a wide array of people, including venture capitalists, strength coaches, human rights advocates, chefs, bodybuilders, restaurateurs, and rappers, just to name a few. And you'll notice that our conversational style and line of questioning is very much inspired by the likes of Charlie Rose, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, and Charlie Munger, who, as Warren Buffett's business partner, really emphasized the importance of building worldly wisdom to, I think, improve your growth as an individual. Um, so that is that is very important to us, and you notice that through our, our style and our questioning. If you'd like to learn more, please head to neural.com slash podcast. You'll see there we also have an index of all of our past episodes and, and the show notes included there. If you like this episode, make sure you leave us a review. We always appreciate your thoughts and and um, and feedback on that. 90% of our guests subscribe for priority access and our show notes. So perhaps you should consider that as well. Again, you can find the sign-up page at neural.com dot com slash podcast that is n-e-u-r-a-l-l-e dot com slash podcast don't forget to like us on facebook or twitter it's just at neural on either platform in this episode we recorded with ashatan who is a bitcoin entrepreneur within the australian startup scene bitcoin is a fairly nascent area when it comes to the finance world but is quite established within the world of technology I think every man and his dog in finance now is talking about blockchains and Bitcoin and other forms of digital currency. So I think this is a really good primer on what Bitcoin is and its potential utility for the future across financial services. So we covered a few things, including what CoinJar, that is Ashatan's business, uh, is, what the Bitcoin industry is and other digital currencies, strengths and weaknesses of uh, Bitcoin, how the Bitcoin wallet works, how it establishes an ease of commerce um, and the challenges that that can come with that, why people would use Bitcoin and then other opportunities in fintech right now as well as leaders and authorities in Bitcoin. So like I said, I think there's a really good primer, covers the whole scope of the industry and particularly for those who are new to it, um, I highly recommend it. So, without any further ceremony or ado, please enjoy this conversation with Ashatan. All right, Mr. Ashatan, or Bitcoin Jesus, as I'll call you on this Easter weekend. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Uh, glad to be here. <laughs> Maybe um, we'll just start with with a bit about who you are, what CoinJar is, and how you got to this place. Uh, so I have been running CoinJar for four years. Um, 
almost to the date. I started it four years ago um, with two other co-founders, uh, one who still is actively with the company. Uh, this, before this, I worked as an analyst uh, for full disclosure at the same company that Jordan currently works at. Um, and before that, yeah, it was uh, just university before that. Okay, cool. Now, um, I find it's, it was really interesting. I, we, when we first met, you were leaving Ibis World, and it was because you, you were essentially doing this Angel Cube thing, right? Yeah. It was at that time. Now, when you did Angel Cube, you, weren't, you didn't start out with a Bitcoin company. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, some people know this story, and I don't really like to talk about it too much, but um, it's just about time everyone knows us working on a dating startup uh, specifically for Asian people. It wasn't completely branded that way, but in essence, that was, really? that was what it was. Okay. Uh, this was pre-Tinder, so I like to think that. You, know, <laughs> was, you could have been Tinder. Yeah. Now, who who convinced you to not do that and switch to Bitcoin? Uh, Adrian Stone. It's probably the only person. Well, he, he told me to do something else uh, and we could get into the program and I didn't listen to him. I, I just told him the same idea. I thought it was some, you know, one of those tests of, of mental fortitude thing. But he was like, no, no. When I asked you to get a new idea, I meant get a new idea. So, uh, yeah, I didn't really want to go back to work the next day. Uh, talked to some guys and came back with a Bitcoin idea uh, pretty much uh, the next day. Oh, okay. Do you do you yourself have any like early moments of wanting to be an entrepreneur? Or was it simple as you were working full-time and you were just like, I don't like this? Uh, no, I think even from early childhood, there was always a hustle somewhere. Um there was always a, a, an exchange, even, you know, in the family, um, you know, I'll do this, dad, I'll trade you for this. Or even at school, um, you know, making your, your own copy of bootleg CDs to sell to the class or, or that's something. There's always a hustle involved. So um, I, I think it just manifested itself in different ways. Okay. And do you, are there any lessons, I guess, that your parents told you maybe directly or indirectly as a kid that sort of spurred that on? Like, uh, as an example, my, I always think of my dad. I say this on like so many episodes now, but I just saw the amount, the sheer amount of work that he did, like the consistent hours that he'd put in, how consistent he was even with his exercise as well. I'm just wondering if, if there was something there that they sort of instilled in you. Uh, no, completely not. My my dad's a, a Baptist minister, really? and my mom's in sort of the ministry as well, and they've been in the ministry for as long as I can remember. I, I, was, I think I was born on like Easter Sunday or something, and my dad was giving a sermon. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think my parents are quite detached from the business world. Uh, you know, very savvy people, but never s- savvy in. You wouldn't consider themselves business people. They're way too charitable to ever be be business people. But yeah. um, I guess that's the the part of that. Uh, you know, you always have that uh, working class man's chip on the shoulder, <laughs> chip on the shoulder. So uh, did, happy that happy for that as well. Did you? Is there any particular lessons that you've taken from your parents over the years? Uh yeah. I, I mean, in terms of like work ethic, and you talk about. 
how how do they view the rest of the world? I think there is quite a important thing. I mean, I moved around quite a quite a bit growing up. Uh, short stints in Canada and the Philippines growing up, so have maybe a, a broader worldview than some other people who've lived in one place for a long time, and also you know different stratas. Like I went to a private school growing up. Um, but I've also been to a public school in Malaysia. So yeah. ha- having friends from like different spectrums get a different perspective on things. So it's sort of like a worldly view of people, essentially. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe that you could just sum up, like maybe a bit more self-awareness um, where you sit in in the broader scope of things. There, Many people agree with you on certain things and there are people who... And yeah, and they're equal amount of people, so you know it's, yeah. it's not like everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And there's a lot of other people out there as well. Do you, what was it like then? If you, so, you were born in Australia. Uh, no, I was born in Malaysia. Okay, and how many how many years have you been in Australia now? Uh, just over ten. Ten. Okay. So, what was it like, sort of jumping around the world and then finally coming back here? Uh yeah, I mean, uh, it's every, I mean, before this, uh, maybe about my sixth year in Melbourne, but I was in Perth before this, and and even from West Coast to East Coast, that's quite a difference. So, I don't know, I'm always open, just try and take in uh, as much wherever I go. Um, every city's got their own stories and, and things to teach you. Yeah. Now, I'm intrigued by... I guess your journey through this whole startup journey, so to speak. So you started with AngelCube. It's been what four years now. Yeah. What What have been the key lessons that you've learned thus far? Like, what are the things that people just don't tell you when you first start a startup or a company, for that matter? Uh, like the shit you're gonna have to deal with. <laughs> I mean, no one said it was going to like, you know, cold play, right? No one said it's going to be easy. No one said it's going to be so hard, right? Um, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, you only can, it's something to be experienced for yourself. Okay. Um, it's just a long path and just keep on, keep on going. Were there any particularly like illuminating experiences that you had in the first few years? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I learned stuff all the time and it's, it's not one thing. You, you think it's going to be that one thing, but it's always something else, right? So it is more about the process, about the journey, um, h- how you keep on you know, repeating the same processes to, to reach success, I guess. Um, and hey, I, I still face some of the same blockers that I, I do right now than four years ago, but I guess you, you, know, you become a bit more familiar with the process you know you can overcome these things. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a. I can really point to that one one moment. Yeah. Do you do you ever? What What do you think was sort of the biggest mistakes that you guys have made that you really learned from now? Because you know a lot of people focus on. I don't know. I find like in this whole startup game that people focus on the successes and not so much the the mistakes that didn't cause a failure, but cause them a valuable lesson over the next few years uh i don't think it was mistakes per se you know it's just new lessons um 
I think there was a part when we downsized a bit the company that was particularly difficult, especially the relationships I built with some staff members. Um, but you know, I don't think I would have changed anything. It was just part of the process. Yeah. Um, some lessons are easier to learn than others, uh, but I don't think it was a, the mistakes per se. Right? It's just some things. Sometimes you just got to experience things for yourself. Yeah. Um, and then you might want to reorientate the next time you face those challenges. So you might do exactly the same thing. What What was What was it like having to fire those people? <laughs> um, I guess everyone knew what they were in for. Right. So there were no surprises. I mean, you don't expect the highest amount of job security when you join a startup, <laughs> especially not like a digital currency startup. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think it was just that. You know, good working relationship, uh, nothing wrong. Uh, I think over time, you know, people have come to me and told me they've enjoyed their job. It was one of the better jobs or the best job they've ever worked at. Uh, some people have come back to do more work for the company on a contract basis or stuff. So, you know, it's, I think it turned out pretty okay. But, you know, uh, I remember having this uh, conversation with my co-founder and I'm saying like, without the people, we don't have culture and without culture, we have nothing. Yeah. And he's like, if you don't do something, there's not going to be a company. So forget about culture. <laughs> you got to go out and do the unpleasant things. Right. And as, uh, the CEO, as the co-founder, sometimes you just got to do those go. things yourself. Do you think that, I'm intrigued then, between you and your business partner, what, what do you think are your own unique um, competencies? What, what do you think that you guys are individually? Uh, that's so easy. I mean, I'm not sure if most people know my co-founder, Ryan, but he's some sort of like savant, sort of, <laughs> sort of borderline <laughs> Yeah, I used to call him Boy Genius for many years, but I think you did, he's, yeah. he's 22 this year already, so I've dropped that moniker. <laughs> he's just a very smart young man right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, the company is as much or probably even more him than me. I might do the podcast, but um, yeah, Ryan is, is undeniably that the brain trusts um, behind the operation, but uh when I met him, I wrote an email to my sister and I only found this email after many years. And I wrote an email to my sister saying, uh, I think I just met the Chinese Zuckerberg, right? Really? <laughs> yeah. Cause when I, I met him maybe about a year before we started working together. So super impressed by how smart he was. Um, and then I asked myself, if you found a Chinese Zuckerberg, what could you do? Yeah, and my idea was like, well, I only could be the Sheryl Sandberg to, to Mark Zuckerberg, right? So, <laughs> I could probably try and get the best out of this person, and it's going to be a beneficial relationship for both of us. So, um, that was what I, I sort of sought out to do, right? Just be a, an excellent uh, filter and manager of of good talent, and I see myself doing that with, with the larger company as well. Yeah. Do you? Th what do you think it is that makes him? so smart is it just pure raw intelligence or is it the ability to use that intelligence the right way i think it, it's both i mean undeniably I, he's got more brain cells up there than 99 percent of the populace um but just as tenacity as well i mean he's had as much adversity and hardship as probably more than than a normal person, right? So, um, how he's been able to 
to come back from that and filter filter that out. I think that's been just as impressive as you know his, his natural ability as well. Yeah. Now I want to get into Bitcoin, but um, there was there was something that we were chatting about before, um, and that was about the whole you know VC startup game and, and funding and all that that whole process, but. Maybe just talk to people about um, what CoinJar is and how how you have gone about building that company over the last four years, like maybe the different stages of that. Okay, so CoinJar is a digital currency wallet and exchange. So you can buy, you can sell, you can hold uh, digital currency like Bitcoin uh, on Coinjar, we've got a bunch of features. We've got a debit card where you can get cash out at ATMs uh, from Bitcoin, or you can use it at supermarkets or FPOS terminals as well in Australia. Uh, we've got things where you can ensure the value of Bitcoin through hedging. Um, we've got apps. Uh, we've got a support platform. Uh, so we're probably the easiest way in Australia to get started with Bitcoin. And do you have any... Do you guys have any like direct competitors here in Australia? Uh, yeah, there are probably maybe 10 oh, really? other Bitcoin services, either wallets or exchange in Australia. Um, Bitcoin wallets, they're quite global. So you can use like an overseas one. Um, there are some exchanges. Uh, I think Coinbase has a buy Bitcoin feature in Australia with credit cards as well. So um, yeah, there, there are a bunch of services, um, but all probably have a slightly different product offering or an orientation as well. Okay. And so tell people, go, walk people through sort of the journey with the company thus far. You're now four years down the track. You've got yourself essentially a company that you can run and, and expand as you please. What's been the journey from the start? You obviously went through the AngelCube incubator or accelerator program. So for, for those who don't know, when you go through an accelerator you get a small amount of cash and then they basically put you through ready to launch as a company and raise capital. Yeah, so I think through those three months, it was apparent if we couldn't find a way to either raise money or make a small amount of money per month, you would, we would did. Like I would have to get a job. All right. So I, I think that sink or swim time was, you know, very crucial time. Um, sort of, again, that self-awareness, knowing that, you know, Given the landscape, funding's going to be tight and only coming from a few places. Uh, we would have to turn over, you know, a sizable volume just to be able to pay the salaries or at least some sort of minimal wage of ramen sustainable for three guys, if not. Um, yeah, and I think that was just the hustle to, to get to the end of the line. And the, I wouldn't say the easiest, but most people expect that you try and raise money after those three months uh, to stay alive. And that's what we managed to do. Okay. So that, that gave us a lifeline. And that so, sort of coincided f with um, us earning a decent amount as well. So not only did we get one thing, the funding, but we also, um, I guess we were revenue positive after those three months as, as well. Really? Um, and, and that was just by doing the Bitcoin exchange bit. So we started... Uh, trying some Bitcoin merchant services and that was okay but not great and then we did the buy and sell Bitcoin and that was quite popular and so that was the, the thing that's really sustained us so far. Okay and so 
after that, you obviously at some point went and had to to raise money, and so you were initially based in Australia, and then at some point, I'm intrigued by how it seems hard in Australia to have a digital currency company. Like at some point, you guys were essentially not so much forced, but you you really had to go overseas, didn't you? Because of some sort of legislation change, or yeah, I think one aspect was. Um, our primary VC, Blackbird, has always had a strong emphasis on global companies from day one. And similarly, you know, Ryan and I would like to have a, a company that wasn't just focused on Australians. Um, so I think there was some impetus to, to try and push overseas. Uh, the UK was quite compatible in terms of demographics, um, you know, we thought people, if Australians could accept their product, um, you know, the British would would have a, a similar outlook. We we did a bit of travel around Europe and and felt that that was the easiest place to set up. So I, I think half of it was to do with growth, but as you alluded to, there were some uh, outstanding GST issues in Australia that also made sense for us to to try somewhere overseas. So um, yeah, we do have a, an office in London. Yeah, I heard at some point that. Um Bitcoin companies were like having their, I don't know who was saying this to me, either I've read an article or Adrian told me, you know, like at some point the government had started freezing Bitcoin companies, like their bank accounts or their trust accounts or something like that. Uh, yeah, we've had a number of our accounts closed. Um, I'm personally banned from certain Australian banks. Really? Um, yeah, it is a tough decision. It's never fully articulated why, um, but it's our understanding that uh, – there are some compliance rules that makes you a very high risk customer to banks, uh, and you don't right. r- really provide any real benefit to financial institutions as well. So, from a commercial perspective, you're adding a lot of risk for almost no benefit. So, S- what do you think the risk? What, what do you think they see the risk is? Uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, AML, uh, anti money laundering. So, um, the bank wants to know who the ultimate custodian or the user of the funds. Uh, and with a lot of these digital services, um, you may not know who the ex- exact recipient is. So there are fears that uh, that there may be some uh, ambiguity around that. So that just adds to the risk. Now, is that ambiguity because that with the wallet, and we'll get into this in a moment, but with the wallet, the the wallet is encrypted, right? So you can't really know if the the person uh, i think it's not really any technological thing per se but there have been some precedent cases uh liberty reserve if you go look at i think uh, nab or westpac got stung with that one um so yeah i guess it's just people covering their asses and as much as i would like to to moan and groan about how they're trying to squash the little guy i can understand it's just a commercial decision it's nothing personal yeah so, yeah, because it was funny to me when I heard this because I used to work at um, Go Go Markets, which is like a foreign exchange company, one of those forex trading companies. And, yeah, just the things that I learned about that whole industry, it's just very dodgy, man. <laughs> like even like this and particularly the companies that are coming out of like Southeast Asia and mainland China, these forex FX companies, so to speak, they're – the, the whole KYC thing. I remember there were so many instances because we had to do AML CTF training. 
And um, yeah, it was dodgy. Not so much the companies, but the people sometimes who were loading up these accounts. Yeah, it's a difficult one, right? You want to have a an environment where people are permissive and people are uh, experimental. At the same time, you're also trying to clamp down on these things for sometimes for very good reason as well, right? So, um, you know, there has to be a balance, and you know, there are no right answers. Yeah. Um, and it's a different world. I mean, there are so many new ways to transfer value. Um, legislation has to keep up. It's always, you know, lagging behind. I, I don't think so. There's, that's just the nature of the beast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I guess we just have to, to keep on collaborating and yeah. um, find good outcomes. So you're in a place now. Um, I was going to say, if you want some more, more of that tea, you're good. We're drinking some fine green tea. <laughs> um, so you're in a position now where you've got a company that essentially you can do what you want with. It's as far as I'm, I think you were saying before, you, it's not like an ordinary startup where you're basically reliant on having to raise capital. You're just essentially running it like a business. What What can you do, do you think, to expand the company? And we were talking before about like KYC, essentially. Have you ever thought about that maybe as a service? Offering it as an auxiliary service to financial service companies is like that conduit? Yeah, so I think thoughts and growth, um, the easy ones are always international growth. So replicate what you have somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We've tried that. I think as much as we can replicate our product, that comes with also we replicate our problems that we have here overseas as well. Yeah. So as you alluded to banking, you know, we have banking problems in Australia. Most places where we want to go, we will face uh, similar banking hardships. And that's not just a Bitcoin thing. You know, fintech companies, even in Hong Kong these days, are crying that it's a lot more difficult to open a bank account than it was 10 years ago in Hong Kong. Um, so... That's one thing that you know we're still keen to do. Probably not as actively pursuing now. Um, the other thing that uh, we're also trying to do uh, is create new new products that are not just catering to uh, a Bitcoin centric uh, user base. I think the thing about fintech products, a lot of times you can s- actually quantify if, if it's objectively better than something else. Mm-hmm. You know, are the rates better? Am I better off on a numbers basis? So. If that's what we're striving to, we can bring that same benefits, not just to a, a digital currency a subset of users, but a larger thing. So yeah. um, we've got a, a debit card right now. We've been running that program for just about two years, a couple thousand users. Um, you know, every month they load up their cards and spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. So, you know, one thing we're passionate about is, you know, fin- consumer financial products. You know, there are a lot of uh, cool cards overseas now, uh, Sapphire Chase in the U.S. Mm. Um, you know, how do we bring some of those great experiences to Australians as well? So, yeah. for instance, that's a thing we've been looking at for some time. Yeah. Uh, doesn't mean that we can pull it off now. It might be next year. It might be, you know, in two years' time. Um, but sectors like that get, you know, us excited, you know, yeah. Our sort of ethos behind the product is uh, make products that you want to use yourself, um, make products that you're proud of, uh, make products that bring great enjoyment. And I think for my co-founder myself, we sort of like those verticals. So, um, you know, consumer cards, um, you know, we've been 
thinking about uh, investing SMSF, how some of these people want to get exposure to, you know, digital assets and things like that. Uh, is there is there, is there one thing in your mind that you really want that you'd love now, to have? There are there are a hundred things, right? Yeah. So I think that the key for us is we've always had a lot of ideas, but how do we distill those ideas? How do we make you know the s- same way we started our company, right? How do we make prototypes? How do we test these assumptions? Um, yeah, pe- people say, "What are you doing?" But we always have you know a hundred different things going yeah. all the time. Probably our our weakness is you know lack of focus maybe in <laughs> but uh yeah i think it's interesting it's always looking for that the the next big thing to disrupt your own business right so mm. you know for better for worse using that word but I, I think you find something that works and maybe that thing can scale from one to ten but if you want to go to a hundred you've got to really find some new ideas to, to get you there yeah um, there's only so much you can tweak out of certain models so you know, we're, we're sort of brave to, to always try new things. I think you're you're in a really enviable enviable position because you've got you've started with sort of the first adopters, right? So you're getting the people in who really like or are intrigued by digital currency and all the benefits of that versus the current system. And if you can show that it can work there, you can expand it into other products that normal people would use. You then bring them into your ecosystem and their the experience of that, and you get them. You would essentially get them as soon as you introduce people to the idea of using Bitcoin and the ease of use versus the current money system. It's only up from there, I think. Yeah, I. It's intriguing. You mentioned about the Sapphire Chase. Is it the the points system in particular that you're looking at? Or is it just like the benefits that are associated with that car? Yeah, I mean, we released our own like reward system last year. And I, I think that's just been, you know, both a, a challenge looking at it as a, a, a software product in itself, but also how people react to, to reward programs. And, you know, we've got a sizable user base now where we can actually see this thing play out in real life you know do we put more points in the system how much liabilities do we want and you know we've we've learned that it's as much about managing these reward systems as it is building them um i think there's an article out in the new york times today and they said that the thing wasn't about the rewards it said the card made them more interesting what really yeah so you know they said you know if you have in the New York Times article, it said if you're an if you're an Amex, you would be a bit of an old world money snob. But the Chase Sapphire, it's like a hundred dollars or three hundred dollars of Uber credit on it. You know, it shows that I'm an interesting person as opposed to I have money. So, are you saying it's like social capital to have specific cards overall? Yeah, I, I do think there is something. You know, um, it, you know what? It makes total sense. Every time we see my partner's parents, I love when um, we get into the topic of Amex. And they start talking about like their Amex and, you know, how they have, what's that, the, not the Centurion, but the, it's like a black card and it's really, really thick. I used to go, always go on about that. It's quite intriguing. i tell you who you'd enjoy a conversation with, it would be good to introduce you to, is uh, this guy, Steve Huey. Have yeah, you met the, the points whisperer. The points <laughs> yeah. He's actually going to be down in Melbourne in May. So. Okay. Um, um, yeah, but I think it's interesting. I mean, it has parallels to digital currency. Mm. Why do we stock up on tokens? What is value? <clears throat> you know, 
what's perceived value, where do I store my value? Um, so I think, you know, just trying to learn from both aspects of, of the ecosystem, yeah. uh, trying to see how that works and benefits a business as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you structure a, a rewards program that really appeals to, to people when now it's so competitive? Airlines have, you know, more value in their points programs than the airlines itself than flying, you know? So, um, yeah. that's, that's the treat you saw that, have you seen that article on Bloomberg? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. So it just shows, man, that they they dominate that whole that whole thing. Now, I want to get onto specifically Bitcoin because so most of the people we're talking to, the young professionals or they're professionals, they don't know. Maybe they've no doubt heard about Bitcoin. They've seen certain pieces on it, but they don't fully know or understand what it is and every time i think about talking about this topic it reminds me of that i don't know if you know that today show clip and the hosts they're talking about what is this internet you know and like what is this email and it's like back in 94 or something like that so if you were to like you know let's say you were to sit down with my parents they know financial services pretty well but they've never heard of bitcoin how would you explain it to them uh I think the the tagline that sticks to me is the internet of money. Yeah, and is that Andreas Antonopoulos or someone like I that? I think it might be. So, um I think that sums up some of the the key ideas around this. So, uh it's it's decentralized. So there's, there's no party that really owns Bitcoin just the same way as you would ask who owns the internet. There are people who owns parts of the infrastructure but not the whole idea. Um, what does that mean? That means there's a diverse uh, spectrum of participants. Well, ideally, there is. And um, it, it's good for transferring value and, and storing value. Okay. And there's some sort of debate amongst users on what it does best and uh, how do we optimize it. But I think those are the core ideas around it. So if you could store and transfer value, maybe uh, parallels with gold, precious metals, on a network that's not controlled by one entity, what does that look like? What can you use it for? Maybe payments, um, you know, uh, securing data, securing uh, wealth, securing securing value. And I think that another aspect that makes it interesting as well it's because it's all digital in nature. It's programmable as well. Yeah. So if you think about you know internet money, think about programmable money as well. And if you could program your money to do actions what does that look like yeah in real life so it's sort of bordering science fiction but we're actually quite a, a lot closer probably than when when people say to you um but with physical gold i can it, it's something tangible versus bitcoin what do you say to that uh yes it is tangible but you're not what are you going to make are you going to make jewelry yeah out of it um, what can you do with it? So how how useful is is the asset you're holding? So yeah. um, you know, gold is definitely useful. Silver is useful for for certain purposes, but you know, it's always about diversification, right? So yeah. um, different tools for for different problems. I think like the the way of looking at it is, it always comes back to what we're using. Money is just a means of exchange. Like if you really go back to value, you would have to own 
you'd have we'd have to be bartering with physical things like I want a lamp and I trade you for a kettle as an example. I just think that Bitcoin itself just offers a far more efficient and quicker means of exchange than say physical cash right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate around the origin of, of Bitcoin story. Uh, many people, myself included, use or start many Bitcoin 101 sessions by trying to explain the barter system, you know, that there were rocks and then there's a ledger. And, you know, not now it's, it's gone from that to, to whatever we have today. Um, yeah, there's this guy in the UK, Brett Scott, who likes to, to point out that that's all wrong. And, you know, money is just actually a figment of everyone's. What is imagination, right? Like it's it's not anything. It's just something we create because innately we we, we need we. That's how we, we work and communicate as humans. And um, yeah, I mean, part of it is offsetting it to a, a digital nature. You're also creating, solving some problems. You're also creating some new problems as well. Yeah. So um, it, it's more of a human thing. Okay, so know? there's pros and cons with it with yeah. any system. Now. In terms of the, let's go to like um, people who are thinking about how Bitcoin gets created and issued and all that. So I'm going to try explaining in my head. You've got a whole bunch of what you call like miners, and every time there's a transaction between people, these miners create something. I don't know what. What is that something? Uh, they create blocks of information okay so uh they secure the information mm -hmm. that is processed and by doing that they unlock a reward okay so that reward is uh bitcoin itself okay so there's a finite amount of reward and the way this whole system works is you know you participate in this you secure the information you compare your ledger to everyone else's ledger and if you're First, to solve each computational puzzle, you're provided a, a reward in the form of Bitcoin. Okay. So, the the monetary supply, the amount of units of the Bitcoin available can only increase with every new transaction. Correct. So, the monetary supply is controlled and fixed as well. Right. So, it's fixed from now till the end of, of time. So, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. Really? Yeah. And so then everyone knows the rate of Bitcoin that's going to come into the system okay. at any one time. So that's just, a, you know, sort of a critique of, of the, the systems that exist yeah. uh, with governments and, you know, with all, all sort of monetary tools. Um, so, yeah, the, the question is, you know, can is this better than a central bank? A, a clear timeline from beginning to the death of, of, of you know, money creation. Yeah. Um, some people think it's deflationary. You know, there are lots of, but it's a experiment that's going on in, in real time now. Yeah. I don't know if it's any, like it's not inflationary or deflationary because you're not changing two mechanisms at the time. You're not changing the rate of exchange plus the supply at the same time, whereas the current centralized system does that. Does that make sense? Uh, like you change, like the if you change the um, supply, it also changes the price of money, of the value, so to speak. Whereas when you have a system that's fixed, it's only the price that will change. So it represents the true value of the money, if that makes sense. 
It probably does, but one thing I learned is I have no idea what's going on in the world of Bitcoin. Whenever I think that I understand something in Bitcoin land, 12 months later, you know, you you look back and say, hmm, was that assumption correct? And I think that's the fallacy. No one really knows what's going to happen or happen. It's still new and there's no way of really defining it. So, okay, so I'm a person, I've got one of your cards and I've bought one Bitcoin. The value of a Bitcoin now is like... I don't know where I had it written, but I think it was like 1900 Aussie dollars, something like that. Yeah, I don't actually. How, how do people, <laughs> I, th- I think it's like 1500, it doesn't really matter. How do people do transactions that are a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, etc.? It is, is it as simple as the value of this transaction is 0.01 bitcoins? Yeah, I think there are all kinds of weaknesses so i think that first that um most purchases are still quoted in uh fiat currency so australian dollar usually um to compensate for the uh, volatility of the currency um the second thing is also the time it takes to make transactions so traditionally it's taken about 10 minutes to make a a fully confirmed transaction Mm -hmm. Right now, it's a bit slower because there's a lot of congestion mm-hmm. on the network. Bitcoin's too popular for its own self. Um, and then there are camps where people are saying, we should make changes to Bitcoin code to make it quicker, to make it compete with Visa. Um, so the question is, is it, a, is it stronger as a medium of exchange, so paying each other $5, or is it better for as a medium for holding value like gold? Right. So... Theoretically, you could have both those properties, but right now the Bitcoin network is so popular it's being stretched um, into two directions, and not everyone who agrees that you know five-minute transactions are important uh, believe that you know it should be like gold, where it's a bit harder to transfer value, but it's more secure because of the infrastructure. Right. So there is some sort of like a, a civil war brewing in the background of Bitcoin right now, which is interesting. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's sort of the key point here is that the, when you, okay, so we've got X amount of Bitcoin available. Every time there's a transaction, the system, which are the miners, will essentially approve that transaction with a certain piece of cryptography, which, um, which basically approves it in essence. Now, that transaction, I think, is the key thing that, that I've gotten is that it's it's basically immediate or it can be as quick as um, the communication speed of the internet. So transferring, you know, th- let's say I've got five Bitcoin to you is almost instantaneous, isn't it? And you don't really require an intermediary. So usually that the first signaling is instant. It takes up to usually six confirmations to make it confirmed. So not only one set of people approve it, six other miners also see the same transaction and say it's correct. Mm -hmm. So you usually wait for some time till it's fully confirmed. Some payment systems allow, they call it a zero confirmation thing. So the first signaling already sort of confirms the payment. Um, but, But again, that's only one aspect of it. Some people see the strength in Bitcoin is, Maybe it's not the speed of the transfer, but the fact that no one can censor my payment. Right. Right. So some people say, well, it's good for people in, in Venezuela, right? 
maybe it's a better store of their value. They don't need an instant transaction, but their local currency is so messed up. Maybe they need somewhere else to store their money. And right. this digital network where no government can destroy might be better than your local currency to hold value. Okay. Yeah. So again, r that brings up different perspectives. And then, you know, there are new people like Ethereum who say, well, the most interesting to this is back that programmable money thing again. It's not that it's fast, it's quick. Those things help the programmable money to exist, but maybe that's not the core feature. So it's kind of interesting. It's a, it's a whole new field of study. Mm. Um, it's going to act out in, in a few different ways. Um, there are all sorts of strange elements unique to it. You know, it's almost like a religion of sorts. Yeah. You know, at, at the core of it, you've got the Bitcoin white paper written by the infamous Satoshi, right? Which is like a, a short paper on the basic uh, workings of, of Bitcoin. And basically, because no one knows who Satoshi is, everyone just points it to this text. It's like, well, this is what the creator really wanted. So it's right. almost like a piece of religious text where people wow. point out bits of it. Well, he said he wanted this. <laughs> no, he said he wanted this in the next paragraph, right? So right. Um, it, it's a interesting new field where everyone's trying to build on wow okay i want to get to the whole kool-aid of the, the bitcoin industry and ethereum in a sec but you mentioned something before about storing value so that's another important thing is that when you talk us through the wallet so basically someone transfers you money and then it's held where on a server somewhere it's held on the network. It's held on the network, sorry. So you actually don't hold, you just basically have a code, ha have a code to the network showing ownership of it. So, yeah, so you've got like a code that is a certificate to your transaction saying that you own that. Correct. Right. And so how how is that well kept away from governments? Is it simply that they they can't just take that code because then they've got to go, um, I guess, check it back on the system, so if they try and transfer it, the system will say, well, no, you're not the owner. Yeah, so basically it, it is a a very long password. If you can remember it in your head, that's the only place it can exist. But like let's say they got a copy of it. Yes. Yeah, so could they then go back to the network and Yes, say, they, they could access it, but there's no way for them to get a copy of it. Right. Unless, you know, you wrote it down... Or, you know, generally, if you generate it on an air-gapped computer, so an offline computer, yeah. you can generate a, a key. Okay. And if you could remember it, then, you know, yeah. theoretically, like, no one else would ever know that key. Okay. So, for, for, for newbies, what is a Bitcoin wallet, technically? So, because that process is it's really difficult... You know, creating uh, a private key, you know, setting up all these things on it. It's possible to do it by yourself, but just really difficult. And, you know, if you mess up, you don't want to start, oh, I pressed the wrong key. I've lost a bunch of money. Uh, the, the easiest way is probably use a, a web based system. So, just like an online email account, uh, that's sort of what we do. You just sign up uh, and you have a, a place where we can help manage all your Bitcoin for you. And let's say you, you've, you've now got a wallet as an individual. What, what are the sort of key pieces of infrastructure that you think need to be built for people to use that Bitcoin in their real life? We spoke before about cards. So yeah. that's one, one starting point. Um, 
the means of exchange, transferring money from person to person is already sort of handled? Yeah, I think commerce could be a lot better. Okay. Right. I think maybe a couple of years ago, there were a few more Bitcoin accepting merchants. Okay. I think most people found out it was more novel than it was useful. Right. So you wouldn't have that much traffic. Why is that? Is it just like there's not many people that use the service? or I mean, most of the times you store your wealth in dollars. So if you go from dollars to Bitcoin to purchase something like a hot dog, it's novel, but you could have just used your your holdings anyway, unless you get paid in Bitcoin, okay. which is a different story. So it's an extra step, which probably isn't completely necessary unless you hold a, a large amount of Bitcoin and trying to draw down from that. Right. Um, there are some better use cases. I, I think online payments, uh, digital goods, um, buying things that may be high risk. Like if you're buying a bit of uh, software or like a, even like a WordPress template, you know, that's, that's ripe for a chargeback. So you basically pay for something, get the item, then call your credit card company and say, oh, I, I didn't purchase it, but you already have a copy. Right. So like an irreversible one automatic payment. Yeah. That's pretty good as well. Okay. Um, you know, some people have said online gambling, sort of that stuff. But I think the, the key things are just the ease of use of e-commerce, like paying f- without having to take out your credit card and, you know, like a 3D secure code. And I, I can't even remember most of, you know, my four-digit pins ago, like a hundred of those things, right? So, yeah, um, yeah Bitcoin works well for some of those. So. What is going to make Bitcoin? What is the key things required to make Bitcoin as easy as using a payment service like um, a debit card or Apple Pay or something like that? Because you spoke before about ease of use in commerce, and it seems that e-commerce in particular is where the real value is. Yeah, I mean, some people look at remittances as well, um, cross-border. That's always interesting. Mm. Um, you know sending $5 to Brazil, you know, almost instantly, maybe even if it takes an hour or two, it's still better than existing fragmented payment systems. Um, What does it take to get us there? I think there needs to be more organization in terms of, um, I mean, the the pluses and minus of a, a decentralized community, you know, it's decentralized, so it's stronger to to attacks, I guess, but one of the, the weaknesses, it's, it's harder to agree on everything because right. you've got a lot of parties all trying to do their own thing. Right. Um, so that there is a bit of lack of governance on Bitcoin. If that's a good thing and that's a bad thing, who knows? But it's definitely uh, facing some challenges in, in terms of you know making the network uh, all that it can be. So what, what is it that you need people to agree on to make it better? Uh uh, I guess the, the the rules of the network, okay, and that's just m- not so much on a user side, but sort of an underlying uh, developer side and infrastructure side. Um, yeah. You know, there's a huge argument again. This, this civil wars I was trying to mention is you know um, how big should each block size be? How much information should we transmit? You know, um, do the guys in China where a lot of the mining is done? How much say do they have over the protocol? versus the software developers who are working in the US. Yeah, so th- that's an interesting <laughs> thing, right? So maybe tell people about where most of 
where is where are most of the miners? They're in China. They're in China, mainland China. Yeah, and that's just because there's cheap electronics in China and people uh, cheap electricity. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So you've got to make it. I mean, mining is a, a byproduct of how much your machines work, and uh, assuming most people have quite similar hardware assets, then it's only how much power do you put in, and whether that's worth the payoff of the, the Bitcoin coming out the True. other side. Yeah. Have you seen that? I'm guessing you've seen that advice docker on the Chinese Bitcoin miners. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of crazy technology going out, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's one company that I'm not still sure they do, but in the Arctic Circle, they've got these hanging doors that open and let cold wind blow through. There's <laughs> another big company that have an island where I'm not sure they're still doing it, but they were piping up water from the ground and, like, you know, cooling their computers oh. and then some sort of James Bond <laughs> type shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I mean, it, there's so much promise in the Bitcoin network, in the technology. Um, there just needs to be more organization yeah. without ruining the decentralization. Yeah. How do you think that can happen? Is it as simple as there needing to be a foundation, like with how Ethereum have got sort of a non-for-profit that runs it? I, I don't have any answers, to be yeah. honest. I, you know, it, it's a cool experiment, right? You know, how much can we... Everyone likes to say things like game theory. What, what does that really mean, right? Everyone, I think, has an interest that this network survives. Many people have invested time, money. Um, I think most people have good intentions. Yeah. Um, but that's not really enough. Let's see how it plays out. I mean, so, yeah. I'm just another participant, <laughs> right? And I'm just trying to make cool and interesting products. And that's my take on it. Yeah. Now, when it comes to digital currencies, um, obviously, looking into this, you've got. I mean, the big thing I notice is, and I like. I watched. I've seen every interview with Andreas Antonopoulos um, on Joe Rogan. I don't know if you know the Joe Rogan Experience, but he was on that quite a bit. You know, seeing people like Max Kaiser screaming at, um, screaming at some event that all the central bankers in the world are digital terrorists and shit like that. How much do you think that there's a lot of sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of Bitcoin, I feel? What, what is, what's this alternative of, of Ethereum? How does it sort of differ to Bitcoin? Do you know much about it? Uh, I think it, I, I don't know too much about Ethereum. Um, the benefits are basically smart contracts, again, more on the programmable side than store of value. So they basically have this sort of a virtual machine, which Think of Bitcoin, sort of all these computers lined up, okay. but it can execute code on the network. So basically any code that you can write in any other programming language, you could actually sort of pass that same code through this whole decentralized machine. Well, this is on the Ethereum. Yeah, so that's the Ethereum network. So if you think whatever commands a computer could do, a decentralized network could run those same commands. Right. So basically, you've made like a, <laughs> that's the real Skynet there, right? So yeah. a, a machine made of many other machines that can run code that confirms on all those machines. Right. So basically, it's a a ledger or a network that is like Bitcoin, except it runs with multiple forms of code. Uh, it, it runs its own type of code, but any type of programming that you can create somewhere else, you could create on this network as well. Right. So the early use cases, they've made things like uh, 
the Dao, which was, yeah. you know, that was like a quite an infamous blow up, but it's quite kind of interesting experiment, right? Do you want to explain that to people what it was? So one of the largest and most successful crowdfunding uh, events in the, in the history of crowdfunding was uh, an organization called the DAO, the Decentralized Automated Organization, Autonomous, autonomous, or, autonomous organization. Yeah. organization. And it's basically like a, a VC fund where programmed by code and people would put their money in like $40 million worth of, into this software program VC fund to invest in other projects through voting. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, some people found a loophole in the code and started doing uh, messy things with it, which made the question, you know, is code the exact rules or was the intention to write the code, the rules, and that sort of blurs into, you know, can a self-governing online system actually be self-governing? Right. Yeah, because so there was money. Was was there money stolen? Or yeah, there was some money stolen. <coughs> so, yeah, that was that was tri- quite intriguing. So the whole premise was that you'd have this system, and then there was a board that managed the DAO, and they would invest on the DAO's behalf. Or it was simply that the people who had tokens in the DAO would just vote. Yeah. On a on a company. Yeah, something like that. Wow. Yeah. And how do you know how that was connected to Ethereum? It was just the the tokens for the DAO exchange. So I think it was run on the Ethereum network. Ah, okay, right. So that created a a mini split. Some people who had, you know, what the the board of Ethereum did was sort of reverse some of those decisions to pretend that thing didn't happen, like exclude the bad bit from the network. (laughs) And some people said, well, that bad bit is part of the network, so they've created their own little fork. Right. Two, two versions of history. One that acknowledged some of that bad shit went down, some of it that sort of ignored. Yeah. So so now they're trading like the two types of tokens as like Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Wow. <laughs> so it, it's trading in two different versions of history. Wow. So yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So so Ethereum, <laughs> just for those again who are listening, if it's really just a network. It's not so much like Bitcoin a means of it exchange or a store of value some people use it for that again it's not mutually exclusive right yeah but But it seems to be mainly used as a a network for transactions or for smart contracts smart smart contracts that's it yeah yeah because when i first was looking at it a few years ago i was a bit confused um i was like what what is this how does this work smart contracts it seemed like a programmer's thing and it's sort of become more apparent as to what it is um okay so why would why would someone want to use Bitcoin? Is it just as simple as they want ease of transactions across the internet? They don't want to have to deal with intermediaries? I think know? the majority of people still look to it as a speculative investment. Okay. So I believe that's why many people buy Bitcoin, um, financial upside which goes back to the, the uh, store of value argument. Um, but yeah, I think there's also the e-commerce aspect of it. Some people decide to, to trade on it for whatever reason. Um, maybe some of it is, you know, geographical. Some of it is, you know, I sell a product that's not going to be accepted by eBay. I'm going to sell it on my own open store. Um, 
yeah, I guess it's like just like money, right? There's no definitive answer to why do I use money. Yeah, it's just another way of of doing something in the financial space. What do you think? Um, and this is probably going back to the products or services that you may be thinking about. But where do you think the opportunities are these days in fintech? What's lacking right now in terms of core financial services? I think in Australia, you'll find that there is no underbanked in Australia. I think almost like 100% of Australian adults have bank accounts here, which you don't find in many other countries. Like in the US, there's a huge underbanked population. So hang on, what? underbanked? Underbanked, like you don't have access to the banking services you may have. So maybe in the States, a lot of people are undocumented you know, you don't want to get a bank account because that might tip off some people. Um, you know, in Australia, it's quite easy to open a bank account. It's quite robust. Uh, many fee-free bank accounts exist. So I don't think that's particularly applicable in Australia. Um, but there are other efficiencies that, you know, might be unique to Australia as well. Like we are quite geographically removed from the rest of the world. Mm. So, you know, money transfer is an interesting part of, you know, how do, how do transits come in and out of the country? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, you know, there's so many blow-ups now, financial planning uh, in banks, you know, th- that's, again, it's solutions are, are where, where to go, right? So there's no point trying to fix something if it's not truly broken. Yeah. Who do you think does transactions well here in Australia? And we're talking about, I, I'm sort of focusing on speed, efficiency, and, and experience. Uh, I guess transfer-wise is, is still a good bet for international transfers uh, to and from Australia. I mean, if you're talking about domestic transfers, that's just all government by the the current clearing. And until the, the new payment uh, processing, uh, new payment platform comes up, whenever it does, you know, bank to bank speeds are all pretty much the same. Um, but yeah, I've used TransferWise a few times to do international transfers. Okay. Um, if people want to learn more about Bitcoin, who do you think are the most intriguing when it comes to being leaders in this space or authorities that aren't too heretic? You know, they're not like all hail the Bitcoin network. People who can genuinely teach an individual about Bitcoin. <sighs> I think the CoinDesk website has some sort of, you know, easy access tutorials. Um, but I think like Antonopoulos's book on O'Reilly um, is pretty good. It's, it's slightly technical, but, and again, he might be fall into that bracket of, you know, a bit of a Bitcoin evangelist, but I guess most people in the field tend to, tend to sound a bit excited because uh, it is exciting and, you know, if if you want to teach, then by all means, someone who's who's passionate about the topic. Yeah. So the, those two ways are a good point to start. Are there any myths, do you think, about this whole Bitcoin thing that get told to a lot of people and they don't realize? Yeah. Uh, highly skeptical on some of the blockchain stuff going around. Yeah. Um, so for, again, those listening, blockchain is sort of taking the essences of bitcoin's infrastructure but removing the the bitcoin side so the money side and saying let's just put information in in these databases and process them 
the same way we do Bitcoin transactions, which sounds really good in many instances, but it's not problem specific. It's just, it's an infrastructure and architecture decision, which is not completely the same as a, you know, let's build a company. I don't say I'm going to build a company with this tech stack. That's, that's not real, the real goal of the company. So I, there's a bit of fluff in that sector right now. I think, yeah, you're definitely right. You hear people talking about, I'm starting this company or just, you know, shit within the industry and they talk about having a blockchain system and it's just like, well, that's just the, seems like to me that's just a decision whether you're hosting your code on AWS versus Heroku. Like it's just a technical issue. It's really bizarre how that's like the key feature of the experience as a product or service. It's really bizarre. Knowing what you know now about the Bitcoin game and starting a company in the financial services industry, is there anything that you'd change at all? Like if you had to teach someone through an accelerator for the next 12 weeks, get them up to speed on building a profitable company, what would you tell them? What would be the key sort of five lessons you'd give them? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) I think things are really different than how they used to be. Okay. Um, I think when we first started, fintech wasn't even a word, all right? <laughs> and you looked at other people who were doing similar things in financial services or very few companies you could find. And now there's this fintech body, fintech awards, and, you know, there are you know, five fintech newsletters out there just in Australia. Um, yeah, I think that the landscape changes quite rapidly. Mm. You know, the advice is just the same, right? Just be resourceful, you know, just find ways to to meet your any inadequacies you might may have and just keep on going. Okay. I want to switch to, looking at time, I want to switch to some of our quicker questions. Do you have a morning ritual of any kind? Uh, do you yeah i mean the phone first thing when you wake up that's just you know i just turn off the alarm go through whatever notifications um yeah mornings maybe i go to the gym in the mornings three four times a week if i'm lucky at least twice yeah so do classes and stuff like that do you have any um do you meditate or anything like that uh no not really i've done some of the headspace stuff before haven't really kept i mean i've done wim hof breathing exercises (laughs) do you like that uh i don't really stick to it too much but i've been to a seminar sort of useful watch my breath you Um, you didn't go to the recent one did you i I went to one before so i've done the ice baths and the one before um do a lot of mixed martial arts stuff now, so that's sort of like my my zone out period. Oh yeah, yeah. I noticed that. I was just crawling crawling through your Twitter profile. You're a big, you're a bit of a UFC guy, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I've been watching this stuff since I was a kid. Yeah, um, but only maybe about eighteen months ish ago started really getting fit, and then yeah, again, probably trained me up four times, five times a week. Oh really? Well, no. So, do you? Is there any particular? form that you're doing are you doing maybe mainly jujitsu or are you doing grappling or are you doing 
Yeah, I mean, like right now, I just attend sort of like a, there's so much to learn, right? So mm. I, I think now makes martial artists being thought as like one class in itself. No. Yeah. So, so I mean, but that's what. So I go to sort of mixed classes twice a week. So that's like 15 minutes of sparring and light sparring and maybe about half an hour of drills. But you've got to supplement it with you know whatever you want yeah. to do, right? So. You know, I do a few jujitsu classes, try to squeeze in some Muay Thai, but there's so much to learn. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of funny because everyone's has their own sort of <laughs> game plan to how, especially people who are newer to martial arts. So it's kind of interesting. Everyone's got their own game plan to find out how to get well-rounded. Um, but it's it's a eternity. It's a lifetime of learning. So you got to be a bit smart on what to pick and what to, to tra- train. Do you... Do you think that you're competent in one area than others, like striking or grappling? Uh, or? Uh, my jujitsu is terrible, really, <laughs> mostly because I'm too lazy to go to class. But um, <laughs> don't like getting on the mat. No, not not particularly. <laughs> um, are you Conor McGregor or Nate Diaz? Uh, yeah, I'm a McGregor fan. McGregor, yeah, yeah. I love McGregor. <laughs> um, is there any? particular purchase that you've made for two under two hundred dollars over the last few years which has greatly impacted your life uh, i'll have to say uh, give a shout out to the orbit key from kickstarter which is like one of the few things i've actually bought on kickstarter that i still use and i got this about five years ago okay what is it? It's just a, a like a keychain thing where you can stick your keys in so they, they don't rattle. Oh, cool. I think it's Melbourne-based, but it's one of those. And, and what was that? Orbit or? Orbit key. Orbit key. Yeah. Okay. If you had to do a TED Talk on something that's not Bitcoin or business, what would it be? Uh... I don't know, uh, either probably relationships, finding your soulmate. I still have a bit of interest in, in those, you know, those areas. D- those areas. I think it's fascinating. Okay. So that's that's what you do. Is there any particular, if you had to give someone a book of some kind, maybe at Christmas, that has had a major impact on your life, what would it be? Independent person. Okay. The, the last book I gifted, I gave my co-founder the the Phil Knight book, Shoe Dog. Shoe Dog. Yeah, about the guy who started Nike. Ah, oh, okay. So, wow. It's one of Bill Gates' favorite books last year. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting story. What What was in particular in that story really stood out to you? I think it's just a bit of the founder's journey, and I think we take for granted how. People didn't really wear sneakers, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. It's a common thing now. Everyone's wearing sneakers, but 50 years ago, people just didn't wear trainers. That's a good point. Yeah. I'm going to have to check that one out. Obviously, we'll, we'll reference that as well. When you think of success, is there any particular person or thing that comes to mind to you? Situation in life? No, I mean, I, I meet so many successful people or people I look up to who I consider a success. And, you know, not all of them have the same number of digits in their bank account. Some of them, you know, have family, some of them don't. Yeah. Um, you know, 
they, they might not consider themselves successful, but I look at so many people and think they've they found, you know, joy in, in what they do. And I think that's great. If you could have a billboard anywhere in the world that could say anything you wanted, what would it be and where would it be? The most expo. No, yeah, it would be uh, my company's ticker on the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> I love it. Um, and the last one, which I think is always a, tr- a tricky one, but some people can get to it. But what's one thing that people think is crazy, but you think is just you can't believe that people don't understand it all? Sort of what important truth do very few people agree with you on that you're almost certain on? <laughs> like, what seems obvious to you, but not to others? That's the that's the Peter Thiel question, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, yeah, just don't be a dick. Be nice to people. It, everyone might be agree with that, but I don't see that practice enough. So <laughs> be nicer to everyone. All right, Asha. Um, where would people find you on social media and and whatnot? Uh, Twitter, Asha TN. That's pretty much it. Okay. Um, yeah. And we'll reference Coinjar. And Coinjar. Everything Coinjar, yeah. Is it dot com? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, Asha Tan, thank you so much. Bitcoin Jesus, as I said before. <laughs> I know you love that one. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making it this far. We really do hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure, as I said at the start, leave us a review. We always appreciate feedback and thoughts on each episode. You can head to neural.com slash podcast and join the 90% of our listeners with priority access. So if you want all the show notes and when an episode is released first, that'll be available to you. Don't forget to like us on Facebook or Twitter. It's just at Neural. Until next episode, thanks for listening.